what's the point of art? Or literature? Or poetry? Are these pursuits just the frivolous luxuries of bourgeois life? Leon Trotsky, the Russian revolutionary, would certainly not have agreed. He wrote in his book, Literature and Revolution, that bourgeois poetry, of course, does not exist, because poetry is a free art and not a service to class. From the vantage point of the early Soviet Union, Trotsky argued against the creation of a proletarian art movement. Communism, being a classless society, there was no sense in artwork affirming some particular class interests. Instead, he said, art in a communist society should consolidate the achievements of art from across history. But none of us live in communist societies. So what is the function of art in a capitalist society for those who want to get out of it? What role does it play in struggle, or in the work of becoming a person more generally? In another episode on our series on class, Nihal Alassa and Juliet Jacks talk to the historian Mark Stephen about politics of art and the art of politics. Revolutionaries, he points out, including Karl Marx, Che Guevara and Franz Fanon, have reached literature in the darkest moments of revolutionary struggle, alongside their manifestos, field manuals and rifles, of course. What's the importance of art to resistance? We live in a world where arts, culture and the literary world are increasingly depoliticized. Can literature really be separated from the political and material conditions it arises out of? Today, we are joined by Mark Stephen to discuss his new book, Class War, A Literary History, in an attempt to answer this question. Mark Stephen is senior lecturer in 20th and 21st century literature at the University of Exeter. He's also written books about poetry and horror films. Class War provides an overview of class war through the prism of literature. It combines literature, history, and politics to chart significant moments in revolutionary history, spanning the Paris Commune, the Haitian, Russian, Chinese, and Cuban revolutions, and Algerian independence, just to name a few. It does so by surveying the literature of revolution, from the poetry of Shelley and Byron to the novels of Emile Zola and Jack London, exploring the writings of Franz Fanon, Che Guevara, Chairman Mao, and Asada Shakur, and placing them within the material conditions from which they emerged. You're listening to Navara FM. This is Nihal Asar. And I'm Juliet Jakes. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for writing this book. Just as a starting point, I've always been interested in this idea of the intention of the art form and whether literature should be written in and for itself or for a political purpose. And usually the way it's presented is in this really depoliticized way. Your book attempted to do the opposite, actually. So can you talk about this idea of literature for itself versus literature as a propaganda tool and how you attempt to show us that in the book? Great, I can, I can try to do that. So I came to this book as a literary critic by training and profession. I am the, the kind of person who is just obsessively, pathologically enthusiastic about literary forms, stuff like rhyme and syntax and, and things like that. And the book itself has a whole lot of what you would call literature for itself in it. I, I talk about the likes of um, Charlotte Bronte, Victor Hugo, Leo Tolstoy, Elena Ferrante, those popular novelists that, that many people have read or most people probably know the names of at least. But if the book's a, a literary history, it's committed to literature as something more than just a set of exciting stories told with compelling language and as something more than just a record of past events as well. It has a textual archive that comprises letters, slogans, songs, manifestos, memoirs, things like field manuals too, all of which sit alongside novels, poems, and those other more obviously literary modes of expression. So with this, I try to expand what we can call literature, that to say that literature incorporates a whole lot of political commitment or what you're calling propaganda then, as well as just those, those stories and the, those narratives. But on the other hand, 
revolutionaries since forever have been finding tremendous amounts of value in in what you call literature for itself. There's that well-known claim from Karl Marx that he learned more from reading the novels of Balzac than from all the historians, economists, political theorists combined. And in the book, I try and trace that kind of enthusiasm for literature as it's been embodied by figures who we associate more with with politics, with social transformation, and with revolution more so than we would standard literature itself. But at the same time as well, I don't think these revolutionaries simply think about literature as propaganda. They seem to love the language. They love the storytelling. When Mao was off being a guerrilla fighter up in the mountains, he was writing quite compelling and beautiful poetry. And I think the reason why is that literature, unlike political theory, unlike the statements of a manifesto, it also reminds us of the the flesh and blood humans, the thoughts, the desires, the impulses that drive them behind those larger political projects. Yeah, I noticed your bio on the Exeter website says that you uh, make no bones about the fact that your research is fueled by political commitment, which I really like and wholeheartedly agree with. That's really interesting what you're saying. And people tend to think of this idea of propaganda now as having negative connotations when, you know, it's just a descriptor, really. I love propaganda personally. (laughs) We should see more of it. You mentioned that literature is an active participant in the revolutionary process. I think you've already alluded to that a bit in the previous answer, but is it always the case that uh, literature cannot be separated from the political conditions it arises out of? Same could be said for art, of course. Uh, Absolutely. I just want to go on a hard hard yes on that one and affirm your negative there that (laughs) literature, like all most art, in, in its humanity, in its forms, it's it's always, it's already social and political. Um, I think this is especially the case for literature. It's made up of that collective social substance language, and it comprises the stories and narratives that go on to shape the political and social world that, that we inhabit. Um, I think the, the literary critic Terry Eagleton, he's got a really cool description of this. He says that Literature is vitally engaged with the living situations of humans, that it's concrete rather than abstract, that it displays life in its rich variousness. It gives us a taste of what it is to to be alive. And that's what I tend to find really exciting about literature and all literature, from Shakespeare to James Joyce and all of the politically committed stuff that I talk about. But where I find that especially exciting is when social conditions start to shape and transform literary form. So not just what is written, but the the way it is written, the way that a certain social situation can transform a figure, a metaphor, it can shape the syntax, the, the diction or the choice of words that we encounter. And we find this all throughout revolutionary history. Um, Some of my favorite examples are the particular metaphors that revolutionaries choose to use. So in a fairly famous one, um, Mao Zedong, the the leader of the, the Chinese revolution, in 1927, he said that in China's central, southern, northern provinces, Several hundred million peasants will rise like a mighty storm, like a hurricane, a force so swift and violent that no power, however great, is ever going to hold it back. It's a metaphor, but it feels like a really appropriate metaphor. It's one that endows the peasant movement with a sense of inevitability of world historic destiny and one that also reflects an agrarian culture. It's sensitive to the climate above all things. Um, Che Guevara had a a similar taste for metaphor. He used to describe the way that the guerrilla cell would proliferate and one combatant would form solidarity with a group here, there and everywhere and how 19 men in the jungle would soon become many thousand. He'd Use the metaphor of 
the nucleus. He described the gorilla cell as an armed nucleus. And we can think of nuclear fission as a process of solidarity building there. And that might also serve as a, a cool historical counterpoint to the more the, 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 the larger nuclear debate happening between states during the, the, the Cold War at his time. Yeah, I mean, something I found really interesting, we've talked a little bit about form and the way literary forms evolve in response to or perhaps in tandem with social conditions. I come from a very kind of modernist background and I've always been very interested in this question about to what extent revolutionary or radical politics sort of ties in with revolutionary radical forms. But something I found really interesting in uh, in your book is that I think you kind of sidestep that question to some extent because you draw on, you know, writers like Mao who were very sort of um, formally straightforward, uh, as well as writers like James Joyce, you know, sort of very sort of formally innovative and influential as kind of modernist writers. And I mean, it seems to me that, you know, what you're kind of chronicling is the power of an idea, this idea of a sort of class conflict and class war. uh, And, you know, it's extraordinary ability to form a sort of narrative cornerstone for lots of different types of, of writing of an incredible form of variety. So do you think the kind of the, the form of the the various examples you, you pull out in the book, how much do you think they're formed by kind of expediency, you know, in Latin America or, or China, you're outside of this like modernist discourse and, you know, perhaps the writers are sort of forming their works in order to communicate with like different levels of literacy. I wondered if you could just sort of speak a bit about some of the different case studies in the book and how they're formed by sort of different intellectual and political conditions. Great, absolutely. Um, I think that whilst this is a book like because of its fairly massive historical and geographical scope i i i don't really have much time to go to town on that 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 proper modernist question but sharing a legacy with 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 high modernism there there seems to me a sense of innovative form follows function that runs through this this whole thing that in various revolutionary situations that class warfare and class conflict conflict seems to be a principal engine of literary modernization um, sometimes more radically than in others so to go with the most obviously modernist one, I, I have a chapter in there about the Russian Revolution and the construction of the, the Red Army during the Soviet 1920s. Now, this was a period of radical transformation for Russian society, not least of which involved a dual modernization through industrial technology and industrial proletarianization on the one hand, but on the other mass militarization. Now, the way that Lenin and Trotsky were talking about this and the way that the state was talking about this was often using fairly mechanical metaphors of building or of construction. Um, This, I find, seemed to inspire or have some sort of positive relationship, at least, with the Russian avant-garde at the time. And so we have the movement that became known as Russian constructivism that people probably know by looking at constructivist art or constructivist architecture, rather, those Russian buildings in which you can see the process of construction within the finished form. We also see it through a whole lot of visual artworks, but that translates into literature as well. So in the avant-garde and exceptionally modernist literary narratives and literary poetry that we were seeing come out of Russia, we were seeing a similar sense of mechanical advancement of constructivism taking place and taking hold. So that would be one of the, I I think, several or many examples that we do see of that modernist legacy being borne out within the book. Related to that, uh, I want to talk a bit about the development of a revolutionary self or You mentioned uh, some of the literature that you talked about coming out of material conditions. And you mentioned examples uh, of both literature coming out of material conditions, but also the written word in service of liberation. So can you talk to us a bit about this distinction and examples from both sides? I I, I think so. So 
literature documents. It, it, it tells stories about the world that, that, that produced it. It tells them at the level of narrative content. It is about these things. But that world also impresses itself again on the form, the way literature is composed, how it reads, how it is written. But at the same time, so frequently, literature seems to be reaching toward a world to which it or to which we don't yet have access. And from time to time, and especially in these revolutionary situations, you can really feel literature straining towards something to which it doesn't yet possess, be that a collective class identity or be that a whole new society that it envisages just, just beyond the, the horizon. So there are lots of good examples of, of this kind of thing, but one of the commonalities that I found myself sensing out in this is the use of collective first-person pronouns, the, what, we would, what, what some would call the royal we, what I think we should call the, the, the solidarity or the comradely we, um, that we that seems to persist through revolutionary discourse, through revolutionary literature, it seems to be an expression of wanting or urging a community into existence. So in terms of concrete examples of where you see that kind of thing play, play out, um, my favorite one comes from a collectively signed semi-anonymous missive or letter posted by the Luddites. So the Luddites were a group of disenfranchised workers in England, especially England's north, who were put out of work by new industrial technologies. And their principal form of rebellion was to smash, to destroy those technologies, to break frames and things like that. But the way that they signed off on one of their missives was this. They said that we will never lay down our arms. It's a letter that uses the emphatic language of collective identification. Then it just has a sentence by itself, two words, but we, as though to emphasize that, that collective that it wants to become, but we, full stop, we petition no more than we won't do fighting must. So we see more examples of that, that way that literature is reaching toward liberation, as you said. But my favorite example of this comes from the Martinican trained psychoanalyst who, who quit his job in Algiers to become a, to a revolutionary to commit to commit to the, um, the, 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 the rebellion, to the revolution there. And he started running arms across northern Africa. In one of his diaries, in one of his journals from the, the summer of 1916, he says that we are off. Our mission is to open up the southern front, to transport arms and munitions. He goes on, then he says this. What I would like, great lines, great navigation channels through the desert, subdue the desert, deny it, assemble Africa, create the continent turn the absurd and the impossible inside out to hurl a continent against the last ramparts of colonial power. Here, it's someone envisaging a unified continental force, in this case, an Africa that did not yet exist, throwing itself collectively and as a whole against colonial power. And we see that kind of thing happening in the language that, that Fanon is using there, in the use of the we, and in that conjuring act, in that trying to, to force something into existence. Yeah, I think Fanon is a great example of this, but also to see his transformation from the Fanon that wrote uh, Black Skin, White Masks, which can was just considered to be like more on the just, you know, for lack of time, on the identity politics type of thing to the wretched of the earth, which you mentioned several times, which is the work that is used by most Marxists and revolutionaries as the work that is grounded in material conditions. So it's interesting to see in Fanon himself when his material conditions changed, when he matured, how his politics changed. So to dive right into your book, uh, now that we've laid this framework, what made you want to write this book? What's your political commitment, <laughs> to use your words? 
So I, I, I think this goes two ways. So there's what inspired the book and also what is its political purpose. Um, I, I think what inspired it was one thing, but what I learned along the way sharpened its purpose into something fairly different. Um, so so what brought the book into being? Why, why I wrote it was it was based on a, a sense that radical egalitarian social transformation, what we call revolution, that is an engine for literary transformation, that so many of the great works of literature, whether they know it or not, seem to be inspired by some sort of revolutionary impulse. Um, And on the other hand, I thought that that had something to do with the way that revolutionaries have always made use of literature, how they have always been enthusiastic about it, whether they wrote it themselves or not. Um, So I set out to write a book to show that to tell the story of revolution is to tell the story of literature, and to tell the story of literature, you need the history of revolution. Um, but as I, as I pursued the thing, um, one of one of my conclusions, what one of my conclusions gave gave the book, or one of my early conclusions gave the book a greater sense of political purpose, and it's to do with the the titular idea of class war or class warfare. Um, I originally set out to to write a book that thinks about how classes go to war with one another and how literature documents and responds to and participates in that. But one of the consistencies I kept finding wherever, wherever I would look or wherever I'd read is that we were looking at social class but without an established sense of organization or class identity that seemed to create itself or resurrect itself using certain kinds of literary forms of literary language. Now, this has given, gave the book while I was writing it a, a different sense of political purpose. And it's this, that often when we talk about class or often when people talk about class, there's that connotation that we're talking about specific forms of labor and employment, as though class is a kind of identity category that's just about synonymous with white male industrial workers going to the the, the factory or the mine. Um, This is an idea of class that doesn't quite have a social referent or doesn't quite have the same kind of social referent that it did a century ago. Um, And so... I've ended up writing a book that wants to show that class is something that is made and remade, but it's often made and remade through antagonism, through picking fights with the the oppressors. Um, And so the kinds of revolutionary antagonism that we are seeing today, I want to suggest a relative to a moment now in which the working class has been forced to subsist without stable work, in which dispossession prevails as ever, but without institutions to rally the the, the dispossessed, that ours then is a world that requires us to know class as something other than a cultural identity bound up in the reliable structures of formal labour. Now, just about all of the situations that I I look at in the book from the the Haitian Revolution through to the, the Black Panthers in Oakland seem to be thinking about class in similar ways, that it's not just about formal labor or about industrial workers it is something that needs to be made and remade and it is made and remade through antagonism through combat through fighting yeah and i think your your book does exactly that and shows us how different class formations are made and remade and answers the question of you know why can't workers perform the social role we expect them to why doesn't it just happen on its own uh so you do a good job of doing that Speaking of, your postscript is called no, no War But Class War. We hear this said a lot on the left, so can you just give the listeners uh, your idea of what this phrase means? <laughs> no War But Class War. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a great phrase. It, it, it sounds good because it is, of course, a, a, a literary form. It scans nicely. Um, but No War But Class War is... A repeated refrain, if not in that exact rhetorical formulation, but an idea that has occupied a large part of the the left's revolutionary imagination for several centuries now, 
The idea, I think, means something like this, that we live in a world that seems to be defined by horrific interstate conflict, by imperial powers jousting with one another and sending the poor off to die. Um, that's what we see over and over again. It's what we still see today. No war but class war is about rejecting precisely that world and trying to turn against that world with its um, horizontal fights between persons, between nations, into a vertical fight between classes to arm the people against the powerful, I think. You chose some of my favorite historical revolutionary moments, uh, the Russian, Cuban, Chinese revolutions, the Algerian War of Independence, the Paris Commune. Was there a specific rationale behind having such an ambitious time frame? Yeah. Um, in, in terms of the, 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 the scale and the scope of the thing, so it covers, I think, just over two centuries worth of stuff, and it does span all across the, the, the globe. Um, the, the episodes that I look at you know, in each chapter, they seem to put themselves together almost organically. Um, this is partly to, to, to justify my exclusions um, beyond the fact that no book can talk about all, all things as much as we'd like to. Um, which one was your favorite? <laughs> which one was my favorite? Name oh, one uh, <laughs> right now. China. I'm nice. talking about China through the 1920s to the 50s simply simply because that's the one that I knew the least about going into. Um, I, I knew a little bit about Mao and protracted people's war, but aside from that, in terms of the, the ins and outs of how it, all, how it would all fit together, the particular role of the peasantry, and especially the, the, the literatures that that produced, um, be they the poems written by guerrilla revolutionaries or the, 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 the realist novels that were written about the, the revolution afterwards, a lot of that was fairly new to me at the time. And so researching and writing that was, I, I had a great time. I found it terrific. I hope it reads well. Well, I've, I've got a follow-up question, which is basically the same question, but applied to the literature that you choose. Um, you know, it's been a very long-term interest of mine, sort of radical literature and literature about, like, class war and class politics. Um, and I just wondered, you know, in several of the um, historical instances that you home in on, so, you know, the Soviet Union in the 1920s or China in that revolutionary period in the sort of early to mid-20th century, or indeed the, um, the Commune of Paris. Paris, uh, it's a particular uh, interest of mine. There's an awful lot of literature that you could home in on. So I wondered how you chose sort of your specific literary case studies. And again, if there's any particular sort of discoveries you made while writing the book or any particular favourites that you were sort of especially keen to share with your audience. Great. Well, the, the way that I chose these and it's also the way that I chose the particular historical moments to focus on on the episodes was to try and trace the red threads that hold everything together. That in any given instance, I usually look to a phrase or an idea or a trope and to see where it came from, to see which revolutionary was saying or writing it, to see then how it got picked up in the literature of the day, how it seemed to course its way through the people and, and, and so on. In terms of favorite versions of this, um, I had a lot of joy writing the, the, the chapter that's set in Latin America. Um, the one that has as its principal literary form the, the field manual, which we tend not to think about as literary. So the field manual is effectively an instructional booklet on how to do revolution that, that goes from at the most practical end of the scale how to prepare armaments, how to fire a gun, to at the, the, the other end, um, revolutionary history and narrative episodes and events. Now, I loved tracing the history of this form as it, as it shifted through Latin America, but I was also absolutely delighted to see that one of Latin America's foremost novelists, Julio Cortazar, wrote a wildly experimental postmodern novel that was adapted as a, it, it was cut to the shape of a 
literary field manual. It's called in English translation, um, a manual for Manuel. It, if, if you can ever pick up a copy of it and even just flick through, it contains strange diagrams and missives as to how everything fits together. It's a story about a bunch of ousted revolutionaries who have been sent away from their home under dictatorship and they find their way to Paris where they are trying to keep up their guerrilla activities but in a more playful, goofy way by smuggling and stealing penguins and so on. So that was a, an absolute joy to play around with. Throughout the book, you offer competing definitions of class struggles. Uh, would you say these understandings of class struggle are modulated differently based on the historical context? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, as far as definitions of, of, of class go, there, there, there are all these arguments between sociologists and historians of, uh, as to what's more important, class structure and class formation and, and all of that. But in the book, I try to really emphasize the fact that um, for those of us who are committed to class as something other than a, a sociological or historical category as a, a force with which to change the world, um, that those definitions, they are going to be malleable and protean. They are going to, to shift. And they're principally going to shift in admixture with a whole bunch of other variables of identity, things like age, gender, geography, race, and religion. So, If we're talking about classes, it's, it's typically defined in relation to um, a collective with shared material interest. Those, those other categories are always going to, um, to use your verb, modulate what we mean when we talk about class, um, sometimes more obviously and more aggressively that, than others. So we think about something like the, 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 the Haitian Revolution, um, race is going to play an absolutely enormous role in this where you are trying to create a revolutionary class, but you're doing so within what is effectively a caste society. And we see versions of that playing out again and again through history. Yeah, and on that note, I'm going to read uh, Che Guevara's uh, definition of class struggle in, <laughs> just because I feel it hits the essence of um, everything we're trying to do here. So he says, class struggle is more than economic struggle. It is a struggle to become more fully human through the creation of ever-widening sociabilities of a boundless horizon for human enrichment. How much do you agree with that? I agree with that wholly. Um, I think that to know oneself as, as part of a class is to be transformed. It is to feel out and to embody a solidarity with one's fellow humans. And if we're talking about class in terms of struggle, antagonism, combat, or, or warfare, it means acting on those solidarities, acting on those com communalities, and trying to make a better world for, for, for those with whom you identify. So one constant feature uh, in those historical moments seems to be armed resistance. Do you posit violence here in the Fanonian sense of that it's like necessary to necessary for the actualization of freedom and as a necessary condition for revolutionary victory? Yes. Yes, I, I, I'm with Fanon and any number of the, the, the other revolutionaries on, on this one. I don't think we can have revolution of the scale that is required to ensure not just human flourishing, but at this stage, human survival without a degree of violence. And that's simply because we are all now born into a system, into a set of structures that is um, that are immiserating the, the vast population of the, the, the planet and setting the planet on fire as they go on. But those systems, those structures have many beneficiaries who are armed to the teeth and who will defend them with everything they have from the police to the paramilitaries upwards. So yes, violence is going to be part of that revolutionary procedure. But I also want to say, as I, I do in the book, that if class struggle, if class war, if revolution has violence as one of its essential parts, it's 
not just violence. It's never just about taking up arms. It's not limited to the practice of, of warfare. And you see all through the book that um, revolutionaries are often criticizing those that make violence into a, a fetish. They say that it's a, a delirium of military ideology, that it's necessary, but it should never ever be the be-all and end-all of revolutionary change. Instead, um, and in the discovery of commonality through antagonism, um, class war, revolution have as much to do with international solidarity, embodied diversity with a commitment to the collective betterment of, of, of fellow humans. Um, it has as much to do with that kind of stuff that we could probably put under a banner of care as it does with bullets, bombs, barricades, and everything else that Fanon was talking about. Yeah, and one can say really that um, there are different types of violence, including the structural violence that we're fo forced to live under, our existing social and political conditions, and even the way our societies and cities are structured. And a really interesting formulation of uh, class transformation was through reclaiming the city in the Paris Commune, like you mentioned in your chapter, um, Defend the City. You described this reclamation as the material embodiment of class uh, can you explain this further? I find uh, the idea of the reclamation of the city really interesting. Absolutely. So we can think about cities as these highly concentrated agglomerations of interlocking exploitations. You don't have a city without a whole lot of persons who need to work to keep that city alive, to ensure the, the collective sustenance of the city. Um, to reclaim a city, as we saw in the Paris Commune, when the, the workers took up arms, formed barricades and said, no, this is ours, we will not hand it over, um, that is to reclaim that material embodiment of, of class. It is to try and seize some collective good that everyone has put something into and to take it as our own. Um, and that's something as well that revolutionaries all through history seem to be fairly uh, alive to. And I think it as well, it, it speaks back to what you were saying before about um, Fanon and violence and whether or not that is necessary or the whole of revolution. Um, my, my, my favorite example of a revolutionary movement, knowing the importance of violence, but needing to reclaim that material embodiment of class would be the, the Black Panthers Party for Self-Defense in the, the United States. They, um, by their own admission, they'd read a whole bunch of Mao and Fanon and went and bought shotguns so that they could terrorize the police to, to keep them out of black, black communities. But they soon recognized that that was insufficient to revolutionary transformation. That wasn't doing all the work they wanted it to do. So they started setting up things like a, a breakfast program to help the, the, the poor youth of, of the area, to, to feed them. They started setting up medical clinics. They started driving, dr driving people to prison so that they could visit incarcerated relatives. Now, that kind of stuff strikes me as the material reclamation, or, or, or sorry, the, the reclamation of those material embodiments of class. I'm trying to seize back those things that have been taken away, that have been alienated from, from the people. And that seems to be a lesson borne out from the Paris Commune onward. Yeah, and it's interesting to note how people in different revolutionary moments recognized each other. Uh, and you mentioned in the book how members of the Black Panther Party went to Algeria actually to seek refuge in Algeria after they were either deported out of the US or they were wanted by the FBI. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that thing about um, class warfare and revolution being so much about international solidarity. We we see, I, I use the metaphor before um, of, of my principle of selection for the, the episodes of this book as tracing a red thread that runs between them. That red thread is a thread of solidarity and it usually takes the form, like you just said, of persons having to go to other places, um, either seeking, see, seeking sanctuary, seeking safety, or going out to lend a hand. Um, we think of Che Guevara traveling to Congo in order to fight with revolutionaries there, to train those there. We think about 
again with the Panthers, um, the rejected offer to, to have them travel around the globe helping other revolutionary movements. So that kind of thing is alive and well, and it unites all of these movements, however historically and geographically disparate they might be. Yeah, uh, I mean, you've sort of tapped into something there that I find really interesting about the book, which is it's almost like a kind of biography of an idea. And this idea of class war and class conflict that runs through political history and, you know, what you might more conventionally think of as political history, so political theory, radical theory and literature. And what I find interesting is you don't often see all three of those points together you often see two of them so you often see discussions of the evolution of political literature and this idea of political engagement in literature or sort of theory and praxis with regards to radical history but I'm interested in the way that political history theory and literature you know they all kind of inform each other and you know the experiences of class struggle feed into this theory which then sort of influences future class struggles um, but also the literature sort of pro is a way of processing defeat and perhaps sort of you know using a sort of poetics and indeed sometimes actual poetry as a means of like inspiring future radical activity and you talk about that as well so can we maybe talk about the way that the book develops this sort of discourse of all three of those things interacting with and affecting each other because I think that's that's something that's quite new here and quite interesting. Thank you for saying as much. Um, so my, my, my sense was writing this and I, I think it, it, it has been for some time that you cannot really separate the, 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 the three of them. Um, and I think a lot of this comes back to what we were saying a, a little earlier about whether literature is or isn't inherently social. Um, I, I, I have my answer to that, but I also think by the same token that the, the thoughts we think and the way that we act, so much of that is conditioned, shaped by, by language and by the, the, the stories that we inhabit, the political theory that we produce or, or, or which this or that revolutionary produce, it's going to be shaped by the language, the narratives, the formulations that are available to them that are in turn shaped by what is happening on the ground at the time. And so I find you get this very exciting but sometimes difficult to track um, interplay between the, 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 this tripartite shape, the, the, these three parts. But the way that I've tried to tease it out is to, to, to map something like an, an intergenerational narrative um the 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 political historian um enzo traverso he has this great book called left or left-wing melancholia and in it he talks about the memory of the left as this vast and prismatic structure i i think to to map these three things together on um, history theory and its literary forms you get a sense of that giant prismatic structure. You can see how all the bits start to connect to one another. But because of that literary particularity in there, you also get a sense of the, the hopes and dreams and desires of those who are living it out in real time without consigning it to simply abstractions or theory or, of theory or histories of stuff that's happened in the past. Yeah, and I think uh, one person we didn't mention was um, Ghassan Kanafani, who was a Palestinian author, an intellectual, and a leading member of the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine. And he, he also wrote a lot of fiction and mentioned literature as the shaping point behind his politics. And uh, yeah, I always think of that. This book m reminded me of him. Absolutely. I, I, I think that that's a wonderful example. Um, Again, it's one of those things that we, we, we see time and again. Um, so I think in one of the later chapters, I, I trace the, 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 the carceral narrative, that idea where someone is sent to prison for this or that reason. What are they going to do? They're either going to lift weights or read. And those reading experiences just, they, they seem, and we have great amounts of documentary evidence of that, catalytic and transformative and eye-opening. And... This is something that 
just on a personal level, I, I'm deeply, deeply sympathetic to. Um, in my late teens, I, I came to politics in a fairly similar way. I, I went off to university. I at first found it a fairly alienating and lonely experience being the poor kid from the country going off to the city. And um, it, it was reading books that I, I found it this tremendously eye-opening thing where I could sense a, a greater, wider humanity than I'd ever had access to. So I think that literature really does have that catalytic force. And with the book, I've, I, I, I've tried to honor that in some way. And speaking of prisons, you have a chapter on Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, um, Italian intellectual. Um, a lot of people think of Gramsci as a kind of like cultural Marxist, re forgetting that he was Imprisoned, literally imprisoned for being a Marxist, for being a communist in Italy. Um, and I think your chapter uh, shows uh, that as well. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So Gramsci, um, a, a Marxist politician, um, also um, before that a theater critic. So he 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 has his um his literary chops in there. Um, we we often relegate him to the realm of cultural Marxism because of his emphasis on things like cultural hegemony, so how ruling ideas sustain themselves to, to, to sustain a ruling class. He was in prison whilst he was formulating so many of these ideas, but at the same time, he was trying to come to terms with a very specific situation, and it was this, that why in Italy, had the masses not thrown their lot in with socialism from which they would have benefited, why had they sided with the fascists? Why had they let this happen here? So why had Italy not followed Russia? Why had it gone its own way and, and, and steered toward barbarism instead of socialism? And his answer to that is one that drew him into thinking about the, the cultural sustenance of ruling class ideas, the way that the ruling class ideology, it embeds itself in every aspect of civil society, and it had done so in a way that was more culturally diffuse and embedded than it ever had in Russia. So if he is a cultural Marxist, um, that emphasis on culture is if not justified, then highly explicable because of the context in which he was writing it, because of the context in which he was thinking about this stuff. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really interested in that, that chapter that sort of traces a line from Gramsci being imprisoned and writing his notebooks in 1920s and 30s Italy through to the autonomous movement in Italy and particularly in sort of Bologna in the 1970s. Uh, and the case study you really used to illustrate this, which is... Um, the novelist uh, Nanny Balestrini. So can you talk a bit about your discussion of, of Balestrini in the book? And, uh, you know, I spoke earlier about this sort of synthesis of political history, theory and praxis, and sort of literary uh, form and radical content. And can we talk maybe a bit about sort of Balestrini's background, context, and how all of these things come together in, uh, in his work in particular? Absolutely. So Nanny Balestrini was a, an Italian author and artist. He wrote novels, but also produced a, a wide array of, of artworks and was also a documentary historian, has, has uh, documented what was taking place in Italy, especially during the 60s and 70s, at a time when we, we, we'd moved out of the post-war reconstruction phase And a whole lot of the left were sensing that Italian reconstruction that was taking place after fascism was keeping those civil structures, was keeping what, what, what Gramsci would describe as the, the civil society of fascism intact. Now, there were huge amounts of revolutionary or proto-revolutionary violence and combat and conflict all throughout Italy, especially in the industrial north, but also in Rome during this, during this period. But where Balestrini is particularly exciting on this stuff is as a novelist. And Balestrini wrote a few novels. Um, I talk about two of them in particular. One of them is called We Want Everything. The other one is called The, the Unseen. Now, We Want Everything is told, it's from the, the, the first person perspective of 
an Italian worker who has come up from the south to work in one of the large automotive factories in the north. The narrator of, uh, of this, this novel um, goes through a process of if not political transformation, then political activation. When they first arrive at the factories, they are they're already angry and fighty and full of belligerence. That's there from the very start. But over the course of this novel, that gets channeled into a revolutionary impulse when they refuse to work, when they, when they join the strikes, and then when the strikes turn themselves into insurrection. They're... They're there and they are part of that. And it is astonishing to read, and especially so at the level of prose style, that across the course of this novel, you get a transformation of narrative voice. It starts off sounding like a memoir, a journal, a diary, but by the final episodes, it reads as though someone is shouting at you through a megaphone. This is the stuff of polit collective political voicing. The other novel of Balestrini's that I talk about is The Unseen, which was written after the fact. And whereas We Want Everything is politically enlivening and aspirational, trying to achieve a better world, The Unseen is written from the other side of state suppression. There, th th there is a whole lot of prison and carceral narrative in this. And again, the narrative voice maps itself onto that experience. The narrative voice is frequently claustrophobic, blocked in. The whole book is written in these unpunctuated paragraphs of fairly tight prose. And it reads kind of like a something whispered to, to a comrade that you're passing in the hallway or a letter scribbled down quickly and shoved into the, the, the wall of a prison cell before being taken off to interrogation. Now, Balestrini then is one of those instances where you really do have form following function. This is telling the story of what could have been a revolutionary movement in Italy kicking off in the 60s and 70s. And it's decline, fall, or suppression. And you can read that not just in the account of those movements that he provides, but also in precisely the way that he tells the story, in the way that it sounds, the way that it reads, the way that it feels to hear these ones. I can't end this episode without mentioning this, but one moment that I really enjoyed was Lenin's close reading of Tolstoy and his usual snarkiness. He says, quote-unquote, in, in 1908, Lenin described Tolstoy as a mirror of Russia's heretofore unsuccessful revolutions. Opposed as he was to Tolstoy's politics, which favored moral uplift over systematic upheaval, Lenin considered the novelist an embodiment of the contradictions in Russian society, which needed to be worked through to develop a united class out of common interests. Tolstoy's, asserted Lenin, reflected the pent-up hatred, the ripened striving for a better lot, the desire to get rid of the past, and also immature dreaming, the political inexperience, the revolutionary flabbiness. <laughs> That's a very Lenin sentence. Uh, can you tell us uh, a bit more about Lenin's relationship to Russian literature? <laughs> As a reader of literature, um, Lenin, with his, his strange, conflicted enthusiasm for Tolstoy, he, he liked his realism, but Lenin was always a, a fairly instrumental reader of literature. Lenin would read things for the lessons that they could offer um, Unlike, say, Leon Trotsky, who was a, a full-blown literary critic, uh, <laughs> Trotsky would he would read Shakespeare for its for its formal potential for its art and art, artistry. Lenin's the instrumental one here. On as far as Lenin's relationship to literature goes, I find then it's way more interesting to see what literature does with Lenin than what Lenin does with literature. And um, Lenin, especially uh, after his death, is inspiration to innumerable great literary works in Russia and elsewhere. Um, I, I talk about the, the, the poetry of uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky, the, the Russian futurist poet who composed a great epic on the death of, of Lenin, but it, it, it doesn't feel elegiac or, or sad. It is forceful and 
powerful and it's a poem written about Lenin but it's something that Mayakovsky seems to have written with the, the, the spirit of Lenin in mind. It's always gazing forward to some brighter future that he doesn't quite have access to yet. Yeah, and of course, who can forget the Langston Hughes Lenin uh, poem? Can't remember it off the back of my mind, but it's really good. Check it out. I think to end on a more uh, contemporary note, um, you have a really interesting chapter on strikes as a tactic of class war, uh, which brought me to our current moment in British politics. Um, how would you frame what is happening right now with the framework that strikes favor the individuated workforce over the unified class, the unions at the expense of everyone else? The, 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 the big you're talking about there was like a very specific moment in American union u, u, union history where the, the the unions were fighting for a particular workforce, but they were doing so on fairly conservative terms. Now, as far as our moment and strikes go and, and, and the lessons that, that that chapter provides, I can say this, that um, strikes are, I think, now as ever take, undertaken not in some revolutionary drive to completely upend society, strikes are undertaken now, as ever, out of defensive necessity. People go on strike because we need to go on strike. If we don't go on strike, conditions are going to get worse. Pay is going to increasingly decline. No one will be able to afford to live to survive, let alone, let alone flourish. So strikes are wholly and absolutely necessary. And... I say this as a as an academic and a member of um, UCU who has spent a lot of this year standing on a picket line. I I say this as someone who I was I, I was delighted to take my my, my boy to, to visit the junior doctors out on the the Royal Devon Hospital picket line yesterday afternoon. Um, now strikes are undertaken out of defensive necessity, but in that that chapter of the book, I use the old school traditional Marxist metaphor for strikes. Um, Engels, Marx, Lenin, they all say that strikes, and this is their metaphor, are a school of war, a school of war. Strikes teach us about solidarity. They teach us who's on our side and who is against us. Strikes teach us how to stand firm. They teach us things about mutual aid and how, how to fight together. That's the school part of the strike. But as Lenin said, a school of war is not the, the war itself. I think as far as our contemporary moment goes, we must strike. We must always back the strikers. We must find solidarity between strikers. But th those strikes alone are not going to transform or upend society. That will require something greater, something more forceful, something truly revolutionary, something that we might call class war. So, so yeah, just just a final question from me then is uh, is to um, to bring it back to literature. You'll notice there's a a Lenin and Trotsky division between Nihal and I, and <laughs> Nihal is the the Leninist, and I'm the sort of Trotskyist uh, oh, literary obvious, critic. Obvious. <laughs> well, you were uh, you pointed out the uh, instrumentalism, but but I'd I'd like to sort of ask about contemporary literature, and is there any contemporary literature that you feel is um, is doing anything interesting with these contemporary uh, class struggles and, and ideas of class war that um, continues the the line of literature that you pull out in your book? And, you know, do you have any opinions on what uh, a sort of, you know, politically useful and good literature might look like? I think there's two big questions there. Um, one, one is what what is contemporary literature doing with this stuff? And there is a lot of really excited work, really ex really exciting work, really exciting literature being published on this. Um, my own personal favourites would be I am absolutely besotted with the novels of China Mayerville. I think his work is tremendous on this front. It bears fidelity to the legacy of all of these revolutionary moments, to the, the shifting and transformation of classes. But it's also just damn exciting to read. His turn of phrase is astonishing and the sense of epic imagination is like nothing else. I was also really delighted to recently pick up what has been on a whole bunch of bestseller lists recently, a 
what I think is marketed as a kind of dark academic fantasy novel, a book called Babel by R.F. Kwong. Um, she's an American author. It's a fantasy novel, or it looks like a fantasy novel that's going to be set at Oxford and should be annoying for a whole bunch of reasons. But then when you open it up, it's this tremendous distillation of revolutionary history that culminates in a great mass strike. It's one of the the, the best, most exciting books that I, I, I think could be something like a, a gateway drug on, onto this, this kind of stuff. In terms of, in terms of what what use literature can be now. Um, I don't know how to answer that. I, or I don't know how to answer it compellingly. I think that that's something that's only going to be answered from the, the, the standpoint of some kind of post-revolutionary future where we work out what, what helped us and what didn't. But I will say this, that literature and the best literature, if nothing else, does wonders to open up the imagination. It does wonders to enliven us to the possibilities of what the human-minded human action can do and what it can do collectively in conversation with our fellow humans. And I think that is something that's worth holding on to. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.